Well, good morning, everybody. If you think that entry was audacious, wait till you see my message title. Go ahead. Throw that up there. Yeah. What God looks like and what God has to say. I totally know. So, uh, so I mean, okay, that, that laughter was not well placed, uh, young lady. Yeah. <laughs> It's good to see you all this morning, and it is good to share a music stand uh, with the young Miss Skinner, uh, who just rocked it today. So there is, uh, you know, I, I kind of looked, you know, at, at she and her father and went, there's a slight resemblance there. So anyway, I just kind of went out on a limb and thought that maybe they were related. But there are some families that uh, it seems like the Lord visited with like five talents or ten talents or just kind of kept going. And it, it appears that the uh, Skinner family would be in that ladder. He just kind of kept going, you know, with them. But anyway, but glad to share a music stand with you, young lady. That was, that was fabulous this morning. My name is Jay, and uh, as you can tell, I am a child of the 80s. So my, uh, my soundtrack... Uh, includes REO Speedwagon, or uh, as my dad said when he saw me playing the 8-track one day, who is Rio Spacewagon? And uh, I just kind of went, you know, if I have to explain it, it's just lost. Uh, It included Foreigner and the now uh, fully inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Def Leppard, uh, probably the only uh, rock band of the 80s with a one-armed drummer. I mean, how does that even work? But it does. It does. And, uh, you know, my, my soundtrack really didn't include a lot of Guns N' Roses, I will admit. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, I got called away to work yesterday and didn't hear my, uh, my daughter-in-law uh, uh, share that, that worship chorus, uh, Sweet Child of Mine, last week. If you were here last week, it's like, how do you... How do you take Axl Rose and Guns N' Roses and turn it into a worship chorus? But I think that's what happened last week. Uh, I saw a video of that. That was fantastic. But uh, I, I am a child of the 80s uh, for sure, and some of you perhaps are in that category as well. Of course, the greatest voice, uh, no offense at all to, uh, to Pastor Joel or anybody that's up on stage here, but I believe the greatest male voice ever created by God is Steve Perry, and uh, I do have, yeah, uh, now that was well placed, young lady, thank you, Um, but uh, I have good news for you today, and I try to be a good news preacher, and so I have good news for you today, and that is, if you haven't heard, Steve Perry has an album coming out, uh, which typically when they're in their 70s means they've, you know, kind of run out of money, you know, from, uh, from back in the 70s, but anyway, uh, but I'm hoping that great worship chorus of the church that we just uh, sang along to, Don't Stop Believing, uh, will be on that album uh, as well. Uh, by the way, my wife Stacy and I uh, are celebrating, as of this month, two years uh, here worshiping and serving and uh, just being with you here at Fifth Avenue Church from the moment that we walked in. Uh, we just, and some of you have had this experience, I know, and some of you, perhaps this is your first day. Uh, but from the moment we walked in, we just sensed something is different about this place and about this people. And, uh, and then we heard, you know, Tim for the first time when we went, oh, yeah, there is something different uh, about this <laughs> place in, in a good way. But, uh, but we're, we are thrilled uh, to, uh, to be with you. And, and I am honored to be 
uh, able to share a few things this morning. Speaking of the 80s, uh, some of you perhaps uh, will remember the 3D stereograms. Do you remember the stereograms? Or uh, the magic eye pop-out pictures. You remember that? Anybody remember from, you know, back in the, uh, back in the 80s? <laughs> you maybe don't want to admit it, but, um, but a couple examples uh, up here on the screen. I don't think it works really well digitally, but if you're new to stereograms, if you just kind of, you know, stare at the image and then start looking cross-eyed at it, and then you kind of go sideways a little bit more, and then you huff and puff and, and declare that you don't care if you can see it anyway, then it magically will pop out. Uh, or, actually, this past week, I was actually watching an old episode of This Is Us, and uh, they were looking at the magic eyes, and I learned something that might have helped me, and that is you not, you not only stare at the image, but you, like, look through the image, and then all of a sudden this, you know, magic thing will pop out. And if you, uh, and, and if you, if you want to uh, do a little homework... Uh, you can you can uh, look up Magic Eye or whatever, and uh, and you can see those great pop out images. The question that I have this morning, as uh, my message title uh, gives way to, is this: two questions actually. The first is this: When you picture God, what do you see? When you picture God, what do you see? When you look at heaven and you stare and you start to cross your eyes and you know, huff and puff and, you know, say, where are you, God? I want to see you. You know, what image magically pops into your mind when you think in terms of God? Perhaps you see something like this. A sinner's in the hands of an angry God kind of, you know, book title here. One One of the most famous messages ever preached in America was Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And there were a lot of frightened people uh, when they were listening to that message. But some people are not able to get over that image of a God that is angry and shaking his fist and has a thunderbolt in his finger and is just itching to use it. And some people can never quite get past that. Or perhaps... Maybe you have this image of a book cover that I recently read uh, called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And is that the image that you picture in your mind of a loving father with his arms out, of of a prodigal dad that is waiting for his son to come home or his daughter to come home with his arms open wide? Our earthly fathers obviously have a lot to do with how we see our heavenly father. And perhaps you had a wonderful example of an earthly father, as I did, that is able, uh, you're able to much, much more relate to that second image here of a loving, embracing, encouraging, supporting kind of a father. Perhaps you don't even know your father. But that image of God that we haven't burned into our mind is significant. And we'll get to that more in a little bit. But when you listen to God, is the second question, what do you hear? When you listen to God or for God, what do you hear? Now, on most days, I have a really difficult time hearing the voice of God. That is a painful admission for someone that's preaching a message such as this. 
and uh, purports to represent God and what God might be saying. But I think I might be on to something today, so bear with me this morning. This morning, let's indeed consider what God looks like and what God has to say. And along the way, we might just get a clearer picture of the God that we're worshiping and we're serving and we're following together. Now, great story of Scripture. There's so many great stories. But in Luke chapter 9 is the story uh, of the transfiguration is the, uh, uh, the theological term for this experience. But it's a, it's a great story. So let's read it together. It'll be on the screen. Or you can follow along from Luke chapter 9, beginning with the 28th verse. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter and John. By the way, uh, what he said was, there are some of you standing here that will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God. All right, that was right before this verse. So about eight days after he said this, Jesus took with him Peter, John, and James and went up on a mountainside to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice from the cloud came saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. And the disciples kept this to himself and told no one at that time what they had seen. So again, what does God look like and just what might God be saying? The first thing that I would suggest is this. I love you. I love you this much. Now, when our boys were little, um, they're now 23 and 26. So just yesterday when they were little, we used to ask them how much mommy and daddy love them. And their trained response was so much, right? So much. Love that. And if I asked them that today, how much does daddy love you? Perfect, Calvin, perfect. So much. Now, this is exactly, as we approach uh, the Easter holiday, exactly what Jesus said to us as, as he was dying on the cross. How much do I love you this much? It's appropriate for us to consider the picture of Jesus on the cross. To meditate on that reality, that Good Friday reality that he loved us so much that he was willing to go the full distance for us. However, we don't leave him there, right? He's alive. We celebrate a God. We celebrate a Lord who is alive. We don't have to wait another three weeks for Easter Sunday to celebrate the fact that he's alive. We celebrate that every Sunday and every Saturday, and every Wednesday, and so on. So, 
Our number one image as believers, though, is actually not Jesus on a cross. It's actually a stone. Now, it doesn't, a stone doesn't look as good, you know, hanging from a necklace, I know, and probably would look a little odd, you know, on the top of a church building. But actually, the stone that was rolled away is actually the greatest sign of victory for us. But the cross is obviously significant. Scripture says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, making the cross the greatest symbol of love, even greater than the Valentine heart emoji. It's the greatest symbol of love, but it's actually not the greatest picture of love. Because the greatest picture of love that we have, that distinction belongs to Jesus himself. Jesus himself is how we know what love is. And he is the very picture and embodiment of love. Jesus himself. Now, one aspect of the story of the transfiguration actually escaped my notice. It was pointed out to me by a professor recently. And it's this. Moses, we know from the pages of the Old Testament, leading the nation of Israel out of Egypt and so on, Perhaps the greatest, other than Jesus, probably the greatest depiction of a leader that we have in all of Scripture. Uh, He truly was the man and truly went through incredible sacrifice just getting the nation of Israel out of Egypt and dealing with these people over a period of 40 long years of wandering in the desert and whining and moaning and shaking their fist at him and saying, what kind of a dumb two-bit leader are you anyway? And so on. And finally, at the end, right before they went into the promised land, Moses had kind of had it and strikes the, the rock and, and like has this angry, rebellious outburst, and because of that, was not able to cross over into the promised land, but actually climbed a mountain, and before the Lord took him away, um, he was able to see it with his eyes, but he was never able to plant his two feet in the promised land. Now, when I read that depiction, of course, we know the rest of the story a little bit, but I just think, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? I mean, who of us have not had that moment, ah, you know, and we strike more than, you, you know, the uh, proverbial rock. You know, those incredible Hulk moments, you know, we've all had. And doesn't it seem kind of harsh that he's not able to go into the promised land? But guess where they are in this story depicted in Luke 9? They're standing on Mount Tabor. Standing on Mount Tabor is Moses. And I think that's pretty cool. So he's actually in the promised land in this depiction of Scripture. And I just think that's a really great sign. You know, we don't always see, right, the whole story. Uh, Perhaps you're like me in my childhood when I, you know, turned off Journey Escape uh, and turned on the radio. You heard the voice of Paul Harvey, right? And, And those masterful, the rest, now you know the rest of the story as they depict, you know, famous people or famous situations and so on and depict some of this information that you had no idea about. And to me, this is kind of one of those the rest of the story kind of moments because we can see some of these situations unfold in Scripture and go, 
well, wait a minute, God. That just seems kind of harsh, but we don't fully know the rest of the story. And the same is true in our lives when we can't see beyond the rock uh, that's standing there and we can't hear beyond the whining voices and so on. There is a rest of the story that is continuing to unfold because God in his great love deals with his people in great love. He is the embodiment not only of truth and life and the way, but he is the embodiment of love. And when he deals with us, he deals with us in a loving manner. And we can say amen to that on every day. Uh, interesting thing as well that I just noticed actually this morning as I was kind of rereading the transfiguration story is when the disciples, you know, Peter, James, and John kind of came to their senses and so on, Scripture says that they saw that the men were leaving. And I thought, well, that's interesting, you know, because you just kind of thought that, you know, maybe they magically appeared and then, like, disappeared. But they saw that they were leaving. And uh, maybe you remember in the depiction of Elijah, like, you know, when this big chariot of fire came and, like, swooped him away. So I don't know if the chariot of fire came, you know, to, like, swoop Elijah away. But if it did, maybe, maybe Elijah, you know, looked at Moses and said, hey, you want to ride to Jerusalem, you know, where the rest of the story was going to happen. You know, maybe he said that, and I just kind of picture Moses responding to him, that's all right, I'll walk, you know. I've got some promised land uh, to discover today. I just love it. All right, secondly, he not only says, I love you this much, but he says, I want you. I want you. And specifically, I want you near me. I want you near me. When Jesus first called the 12, Scripture records it this way in Mark 3. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, I will admit to you, for most of my preaching life, I focused on the last part of that Scripture, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority over demons. But don't miss the first half of that verse because the first call of Jesus to all of us is that we might be with him. First and foremost, before he wanted the disciples to do anything, he wanted them to be with him. And they were with him for a period of three years and, uh, and beyond. The first and last desire of Jesus is that you and I would simply be with him. This is a hard sell, I know, in our hard-driving culture, but it's true. And he says the same thing to us that he did to his first followers. Before I ask you to do anything in my name, let's just be together. Now, by the way, did Jesus have besties? Is another kind of side question. Did Jesus have besties? Well, it appears from the words of Scripture that yes, He did. He didn't take, for some reason, all of the first 12 up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. He just took Peter, James, and John. And there there are other places where it was depicted as these three kind of following a little bit closer uh, to Jesus than the others. Scripture also talks about some others of Jesus' besties, which include Mary Martha and Lazarus. And it appears that these people who lived in 
the city of Bethany, which is one of Jesus' favorite places to hang out, were really great friends. Perhaps even a best friend Jesus had in Lazarus, which makes that depiction in John 11 of the story of Lazarus dying so much more curious to people that were around Jesus because they knew that he loved him. And uh, he was one of his besties. And it's like, why would you heal you know, these other people and allow Lazarus to die? Well, again, in the words of Paul Harvey, we know the rest of the story, right? But for a period of several days, they didn't know the rest of the story. But Jesus is one of those guys, though, I think, that, that's like some people that, that maybe you've been around, that just have this almost supernatural ability to make everybody that comes into their presence feel like a bestie. If you've been around people like that, it's just amazing. And when they're described, it's like they've got like 50 people saying, that's my best friend. And Jesus is one of those that's that way. He's not a, he's not a God that plays favorites. He's a God that's got this incredible bestie bandwidth. And when you're with him, it's like there's nobody else in the world. He's got that unbelievable, godly, of course, ability to make us feel that way. Now, the next person in this depiction of the transfiguration, other than Moses, is Elijah. And perhaps you've, you've heard a, a number of the stories of Elijah, this incredible prophet of God. You know, head-scratching kind of stories where these, where these you know, young people were teasing him and pointing their fingers at him and calling him bald one and all that. And Elijah calls the bears out of the woods, you know, to, to, to get him. And I'm like, okay, that's in scripture. All right, moving right along, you know. It's an incredible man of God, incredible, powerful things that he did. Perhaps none greater than this depiction of, of Elijah on Mount Carmel where he calls all the prophets of Baal, uh, to come up there on the mountain and let's determine once and for all who's God and who's not. Who's the real deal and who's just pretending. So there's over 400 of these prophets of Baal that are up there. And so he goes, let's just in the presence of everybody else, let's just determine it. And so he lets them go first. And so they build their altar and do whatever they're going to do. And, and, they, and they start, you know, doing their prayers and so on, visit us and nothing happens, of course. And nothing happens. And so Elijah starts hurling insults at them. Well, maybe your God is sleeping. Let, you know, maybe you better wake him up. So they start screaming louder and then they start cutting themselves. And, you know, again, hour after hour goes by and nothing happens. And then Elijah had, rebuilds the altar, puts the sacrifice there and the wood, and then he calls for water on the altar and they pour gallon after gallon after gallon of water until this whole area is covered and then he prays a simple prayer and fire from heaven falls upon the sacrifice and it was one of Elijah's greatest moments and how does he how does he get done with that moment and react next well i think he reacts an awful lot like you and i would react that is, after he'd taken care of the prophets of Baal, he gets, he gets a note from Queen Jezebel saying, you're next. I want your head on a platter. And, and instead of Elijah going, well, the God that I serve is able to protect me, and you know, all those things you know, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said in the fiery furnace, 
Instead, Elijah just turns on his heels and runs for his life. Until he gets to a broom bush and he hides under it and that's kind of where God finds him. You know, trembling. You know, here's this great prophet of God trembling underneath a bush hoping that Queen Jezebel won't find him. I can relate to somebody like Elijah. He has these incredible mountaintop experiences followed by these times of fear and loneliness and depression followed by this incredible revelation of God where God takes him up to the mountain and, you know, hail and lightning and thunder and all of that. And scripture says God's not in any of that, but it says he was in a gentle whisper and Elijah had to cover his face because he knew he was in the presence of God himself. I mean, amazing experience that Elijah had. But what a wonderful depiction in this broom bush episode of the incredible tender loving care that God has for his prophet. See, he didn't just care what Elijah was doing. He cared for Elijah. And instead of meeting him in the broom bush, you know, again, with that thunderbolt of a finger of his, instead, he tenderly cares for him and allows him to eat and allows him to sleep and allows him to eat and allows him to sleep and then reveals himself and his glory to him. He didn't just care about what Elijah did. He cared about the prophet Elijah. And that's what we see depicted in the pages of Scripture and that's what we see depicted in all of our lives. That God deals with us as a loving father with tender, loving compassion. He didn't just care about Elijah's prophetic work. He cared about the prophet. And finally, not only is he saying I love you and I want you, but I, he's not saying I need you. All right? That, that might follow is the next thing. I love you, I want you, and I need you. No, it's not I need you. It's this. I will never leave you. I will never leave you despite how it might look, despite how it might look. The bottom line is that God doesn't need us, period, full stop, drop the microphone. God doesn't need us, but he does want us. And he does invite us to join him in what he's already doing. We don't have to make these things up. God is already at work in every one of these lives this morning here. And in 7.6 billion people around the world. That is how many projects he currently has going right now. And he invites us to join him. Just like he invited Moses and Elijah to join him in what he was doing and what he planned to do. In the midst of the first commissioning of these first disciples on yet another mountaintop, Jesus not only made their assignments clear, but made something even more important crystal clear, and it's this, from Matthew 28, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's not just about preach and teach and baptize. It's remember I am with you always to the very end of the age. Like Elijah, he's with us from the mountaintops to the broom bush or from the corner office to the broom closet. He's with us in the best of times, and he's especially with us in the worst of times.
recently in the news. We uh, turned on, and most times you really don't want to turn on the news, right? You don't want to read what's happening in the news. And a couple weeks ago, we had one of those days that the New Zealand Prime Minister called the darkest day in New Zealand. We can all relate, right, to the darkest day. What are some of the darkest days that you can remember? 9-11, perhaps, is one of those days. Scripture is filled with a lot of depictions of really dark days. One of those dark days is depicted in the Christmas story. And it's one that we typically, for good reason, don't rehearse a lot during the Christmas season. But it's what's called the slaughter of the innocents. Where King Herod, who'd been outwitted by the Magi, knew that from prophecy the Messiah had been born, so he wasn't taking any chances and just said, kill all the kids two years and under. And that's when it talks about Rachel and her great weeping, refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. That is the slaughter of the innocents. The unimaginable scenario as these, as these Roman conquistadors, these Roman soldiers came roaring through the town killing all of the kids that were two years of age and under. You can imagine why Israel wanted so desperately to get out from under their iron fist, right? The slaughter of the innocents, the darkest of days. How about the Garden of Gethsemane, which was the darkest day for Jesus? In fact, was so horrible that as the disciples were sleeping, it, it, Jesus is depicted as sweating blood. And there is actually a, a physical explanation for this because the stress is so unbelievable that that actually physically happened to Jesus. And that was before he even headed for the crown of thorns and the nails and the whips. The darkest day. The darkest day, of course, for the first followers is what we refer to as Good Friday. It's a day where they went from thinking, all right, we're on our way to Jerusalem. Jesus had tried to prepare him for this moment and he just went, and they get to Jerusalem and they went from, we're taking over and everything's going to be great. And here is the moment to the moment being watching Jesus be placed on the cross and in horror realizing that we just might be next. And away they flee. It was the darkest of days on Good Friday. And Saturday wasn't any better. But then Sunday. But then Sunday. But what about you? And what about me? What is your darkest day? For some... It maybe was election day when Donald Trump took office. But we're not going to go there. We're just not going to go there. Perhaps your darkest day is the death of a loved one. A cancer diagnosis. The day when a divorce was final. Or tax day. The darkest of days. One of the darkest days I can remember was May 13th. About 4.01 p.m. in the year 2013, now nearly six years ago, when my boss came into my office and let me know that I was laid off. And that began a journey of a lot of dark days. And some of you can, can relate to that. But to all of us in our darkest days, Jesus would sing to us, in his best Steve Perry voice. 
Don't stop believing. Don't stop believing. Now here at last is the rest of my title. You might have noticed that there were some parentheses in the, the first time around. And here is the rest of the story. And that is this. Jesus is what God looks like and what God has to say. Jesus is. As you again consider what God has to say, remember this. If you are hearing a different message other than Jesus, you're tuned into the wrong station. As you consider the picture of God in your mind's eye, in the same way, remember this. If you see something other than Jesus, then your picture is inaccurate. Scripture says this, Anyone who has seen me, Jesus saying, has seen the Father. Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Now let's go back one final time to the Mount of Transfiguration. And consider crazy Peter, all right? And Peter is one of those guys that just all of us can relate to. You know, that just means so well and he's full of zeal and he wants to do the right thing and so often it's the, it's the uh, Nike that gets inserted deep into his mouth, right? He just has a tendency to say the wrong things and at times do the wrong things, but, but Peter always means well and sometimes he does really well, even when he jumped out of the boat. You know, he was the only one of the disciples that actually jumped out of the boat and walked on water for a while. The only disciple that even had... Who would think that? You know, just if that's you... I'm coming out, all right? But Peter had this moment where Scripture says he didn't know what he was saying, of course, as he's seeing, you know, Jesus in dazzling splendor and seeing Moses and Elijah, and they recognize them in dazzling splendor. And Peter did what a lot of people would think was perfectly reasonable. Well, let's, let's build a temple. In fact, let's not just build one temple. Let's build three. One for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for Jesus. Now, it's very significant what he is, uh, what he is recommending. And we'll get to that in just a second here. But when it comes to the scriptures, one of the best lessons that I've ever learned as far as understanding how to read scripture is this. When you picture Jesus right in the middle of it and you picture two spotlights that are shining on Jesus, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, all of Scripture is designed to point wildly. It's Him. All of Scripture pointing right to Jesus. In fact, Jesus says this in John 5, You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to me to come to me to have life. In fact, as I've shared here before, the very gospel itself is not for spiritual laws or the Romans road. The very gospel itself is a person, and that person is Jesus himself. And the very ultimate revelation of God is not the pages of scripture. Okay, the thunderbolt and lightning didn't come from heaven on that, all right? It's not the pages of Scripture. It's Jesus himself. He is the very Word of God incarnate. 
It all points to Jesus. He is the ultimate revelation of God. He is what God has to say. He is the very image, the exact representation of God. Therefore, Scripture exhorts us, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. So let's do that. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Now back to the magic eye for just a moment. Some of you maybe have seen this before. And again, I'm not sure that this will work digitally or not. But there are four dots kind of right in the middle of that image that if you will fix your eyes on those four dots for just about 15 or 20 seconds, and oftentimes you can look at the ceiling after, but our ceiling is not white, so maybe, maybe look at the walls on either side. Again, I'm not positive it will work digitally. But after, after you're done, kind of, kind of look at a white wall and perhaps... You will see a vision this morning. And if that, if that didn't work for you, if you go to moillusions.com, uh, that's where I found that. It's pretty cool, isn't it? But we fix our eyes on Jesus until that very image of God himself is burned into our retina for all time. So here are the takeaways. We're out of time. Our pastor's starting to fidget. I'm over time, actually. My wife is shocked. But here's the takeaways real quickly. First is this. No. Be biodynamically encouraged. I, I learned a, a word in, in kind of, I'm a local tour guide and, and we were being taught by a, a, a local winemaker and he talked about how things have gone just beyond organic to now the word is biodynamic. All right, So don't just look for organic. Look for biodynamic. But be encouraged. Be encouraged. The best possible encouragement. All of us, what we would love to hear from our spouse, what we would love to hear from our friends, what we would love to hear from our earthly father and mother, and what we would especially love to hear from the God that we serve is, I love you, I want you, and I will never, ever leave you. And that is the message that we get from God himself. So be encouraged. Be reminded this morning that you can trust him regardless of what you see and regardless of what you hear today. Be encouraged and be reminded because it is true. Don't stop believing. We can hold on to that feeling because it is more than a feeling. And do. Be intentional. As it relates to following Jesus, seek Jesus first and listen to him most. See, Peter's response was to put up three temples. One over the one that was representing the law, and that's Moses. One who is representing the prophets, and that's Elijah. But scripture says there's one even greater than the law and the prophets, and even one greater than the one representing the New Testament, Peter, James, and John. And that's why the voice out of the clouds says, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. That's who we listen to first, 
That's, how, that's who we listen to most. How do we make sense of the pages of Scripture? We recognize that the Old and New Testament are pointing at him. And when we start and end with Jesus, his words and his character, we are on our way to truly understanding what God looks like and what God has to say. Final image up here I just love. Um, It's called Dixon's original Joyful Laughing Jesus. And again, there's a lot of people when they think in terms of Jesus, you know, maybe they've seen the Good Shepherd and, you know, there's a lot of good images that are out there. I just really love that one. So let's burn that one into our subconscious as well. Would you stand with me and let's pray.